Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Why does the Catholic Church consider contraception and abortion immoral? Honestly, this is one of the two most controversial and complicated questions of this entire series, and it's controversial not because it's really complicated or because the themes are difficult, but because the weight they carry affects so many people's lives and really do affect relationships and how people see themselves. This question has a lot of bearing. I think the quickest way we can see why this question has such bearing is to look at our political system as it is. Our current political system looks at the perspective of pro-choice and pro-life, two particular movements that are very much so at odds with each other. And, as we'll discuss at the end of this, they have reasons to be at odds with each other. They have difficulties inherent in them that have goods and they have issues. We'll get to that later. But really what's at the core of this question of both contraception and abortion is three particular issues, the natural law, marriage, and sexuality, or sexual morality. Each of these three I'll examine in context as well as explore them more fully as we go through this particular question. The first big topic is natural law. Natural law is complicated and very simple. On the very simple end, what natural law is, is it's the philosophy that everything in the created order, everything in nature, is intended for a purpose or an end. Even the very elements of our bodies are intended for a very specific purpose or end. And when we use them for that purpose or end, then it's a good. When we use them against that purpose or end, or for our own self-pleasure, then they end. Then the end is immoral, or the action is immoral. In light of all this, we can see... In light of all this, there are some difficulties inherent in natural law, but there's also some positives that help us see the real reason why the Catholic Church sees, especially contraception, as immoral. So the natural law, as I mentioned a moment ago, is based on the idea that all these, all of nature, all of our natural tendencies, all of our elements of our body are tended towards a specific end. Let me give you an example. The digestive system. The digestive system is meant to help us obtain nourishment. We put food in our bodies, and when we eat that food, it is dissolved into our system and becomes the basic nutrients for sustaining life. This is what the digestive system is for. Now, on one end, it can be used positively or appropriately, which means I take in nourishing food that gives me the nourishment that I need, and as I eat this nourishment, my body absorbs it and uses it for the sake of keeping me alive or keeping me healthy, or giving me vigor and energy, that kind of good. Conversely, I can choose to eat junk food. I can choose to eat things that go against this idea of nourishment, against this idea of sustaining myself and bringing well-being. And this can be on many different levels. On one level, it can be stuff like sweets and desserts that, if used in excess, 
cause me to be sluggish and could develop conditions like diabetes. On the other end of this same side of the spectrum could be things that have no nutritional value, like no-calorie foods, that basically I'm eating them for the sake of obtaining the pleasure of eating, but ultimately they do nothing good for my system. My body can't digest it well, or it could lead to more problems such as over, um, over excessive weight loss, or even weight gain depending on what I'm eating. Both of these parts of that side of the spectrum, both eating improper foods and eating foods that don't nourish me, use my digestive system for the ends of giving me pleasure and not what it's intended for. The digestive system is intended for me to get nourishment and feel well and healthy. That's what it's for. This example shows what I mean by the natural law and what natural law theory does. It takes things inherent in nature, processes nature itself, to develop an ethical code on how we should behave and what we should do. Now, there are a few inherent difficulties with natural law before I head into its connection with contraception and abortion. One of the inherent problems with natural law is how do we evaluate what is considered the natural end. The natural end seems to have a very specific end that we can see, like digestion is for nourishment, the eyes are for the ability to see, the ears are so that we can hear things, our legs are so we can move around. That's pretty normal and natural and pretty easy to understand. But when we talk about sexual morality in relation to natural law, we have some difficulties. We can see our biological function of reproduction as a extension of our need to reproduce. So that means that all of our genitalia should be used for the sake of reproduction. But when we look at nature, it gets more complicated. And as new animal researchers have come out, as animal researchers have come out with new studies, they have found that in nature, animals use their sexual tendencies for their pleasure. For example, bonobos, giraffes, and a lot of the primates have ways in which they use their genitalia as more of a social function or because they are bored and want something to do or because they have natural urges that they don't know what to do with. Do we then use the the examples of these particular animals as examples of how we should behave as well? Well then, what about animals that only mate once a year? Do we take their example as we should only mate once a year and have like a mating season for humans? Take a moment to explore this as a mental experiment for me, with me, because this seems odd. Humans now have a mating season. Anyways, I digress. Or what about animals that don't really have a reproductive cycle, like ants? Do we take their example and have like a breeding population of humans and the rest of us don't do this at all? This is one of the issues. Nature is not consistent on how we should see a moral ethic come out of it. And therefore, it's difficult for us to use nature, or at least we have to put new constraints on how we understand nature, to use it in the context of a natural law theory. But, nevertheless, we do have one thing we can say. Our genitalia are meant for a specific ends. And the specific ends are important to note. They are meant on one end for procreation. Our genitalia are meant for us to be able to birth children, to um, continue the species, to be able to have a family of our own. But we also know that they produce quite a bit of pleasure, enough so that the media takes and runs with it and makes that the core of pretty much every movie 
or every source of media, or at least part of it, as kind of getting our emotions driven towards enjoying the film. That being said, does that mean that pleasure should not be part of the sexual ethic, or should procreation not be a part of the sexual ethic? Or, conversely, do both of them need to be part of the sexual ethic, part of the system that builds in what our genitalia are meant for? This leads us into the question of marriage. What is marriage? To look at this historically gives us a sense of where marriage was founded from and how we got to where we are today. Way back when, we can go well before modern society in many ways, marriage was an institution developed to preserve a family or to build ties between families or to build a kind of preservation of society. On one level, the preservation of society was the procreation of children, that they would actually have more people in the next generation, which is largely important if you want to survive as a species. But also as part of the marriage system was the building of relationships between families. The daughter and the son of two different families would marry together and therefore build ties between both families. This was also seen in Middle Ages Europe, in which kingdoms would form ties by marrying between the two kingdoms. That was a way of establishing relationships. Hopefully, there was actually love present in the midst of this, as we would hope from a modern sociological perspective, but we also know that was not necessarily the case. When marriage was seen in this context, it was seen as an institution, as a way of understanding the ties in society and the way relationships develop, and helping to build those into the preservation of society. As we continue to the modern era, marriage takes a very different focus. Marriage now has the core value of love, and it becomes the society's ratification of the love shared between two people. In this context, it's now more about love than it is about ties. And frankly, in our modern society, we really don't care about family ties anymore. Neither do we care about marriage linking two countries together. That's just foreign to us. So to have a new foundation for marriage makes sense. Now this has problems with it too. If love is the core of the marriage, does that mean that as soon as the couple stops loving each other, they, the marriage ceases to exist? Wait a minute. Does that also mean that marriage is really just the society saying, yay, we support these two people and their life of love for each other, and we'll do it as long as they love each other, and then it's over? If love truly is the foundation of marriage, it loses a lot of its gravity and weight. It seems to take on a character in which it's just an ephemeral process that we move from one marriage to another without much else tied to it. But we also know, from a sociological perspective, that breaking the bonds of marriage, breaking the ties of relationship that are inherent in marriage, has a lot of stress and distress that it causes that couple. So to have marriage have no foundation, or a very loose foundation, leads to a lot of sociological and mental health problems within the context of society, as we break and build relationships so constantly that people are kind of in this whirlwind of emotional feelings and problems as they move between one marriage and another, one relationship as another. In this way, we don't want to divorce a sexual ethic from marriage, neither do we want to try and diminish it. But from the Catholic Church's perspective, marriage has an end, or two ends more specifically. 
the point of marriage is for the good of the spouses and the procreation of offspring. I want to expand on both of those for a moment so we get a sense of the gravity and the complexity of both of those poles. So the procreation of children is pretty simple. The point of marriage is that the, the family can exist, and the family exists because the spouses have children, that they use the bonds of love between them, which are so strong that they birth children into the world. And in this way, for a long time, the church saw the ethic between the couples as a good, that if one spouse wanted children, that spouse had rights over the other spouse to make sure that there were children in the family. That has been relaxed slightly, and that it doesn't seem in the exact same light anymore. But, still, the end of procreation is an essential part of marriage for the Catholic Church. That the couple has to desire children as a ratification and a unification of their love. As an expression of their love, they have children. The good of the spouses is a little more complicated and also very vital to the good of this marriage bond. The good of the spouses is a recognition that the spouses are to grow together, to work together, to become one. And as their life develops, they will continue to build these bonds through good times and through bad, through health, through sickness, as we hear in common marriage lingo. That being said, that the whole point of marriage is not just the society ratifying their love, but the recognition that as this couple grows together, they will build these bonds of love. They will come to know each other. They will support each other. They will be there with each other. And it's not just as long as love lasts, but through all the good times and the bad times in the midst of all of this. Therefore, marriage is not just an institution developed for the sake of ratifying someone's love, but for the sake of letting two people grow to express their love. And more importantly, from a theological perspective, that they express God's great love, his undying love for us, that as he grows to know us and we come to know him, a form of union is established. The same thing is analogous of the marriage bond, that they are growing to love one another and they show that love to the world. They show God's love to the world through their love. Sexual morality in the Catholic Church is directly related to marriage. And namely, that all sexual, sexual activity is limited to marriage. Anything sexual outside of marriage is considered immoral. And that's because the marriage bond is what brings forth the need and the, the end to which sex makes sense. Only in the context of a family does it make sense to have more children. And in that way, marriage is the reason why sexuality has its good. Not that sexuality is bad, and not that sex is bad, Sex is inherently very good because it's through it that two people show and express their great love for each other. It's through that great love that children come into the world. And it's through children that we see the joy of what it means to be human and that what it means to be a family and what it means to preserve, preserve our society. In this way, marriage as the core good to, from which sexuality has its end is vitally important. Not many people agree with this outside of the perspective of the Catholic Church, but that's why so much of what we say about both masturbation, pornography, and sexual ethics is tied deeply in with marriage, that that's the appropriate expression. Anything outside of that is considered inappropriate. Let's talk about sexual morality for a moment, since I mentioned it a moment ago in the context of marriage. 
In our modern era, we are struggling to gain a proper concept for sexual morality. If we go back 60 years ago, the idea of sex morality was so vitally different. In one level, sexuality was defined directly in relation to marriage and tied to it, that sexual expression was only proper in a marriage, to the point where even being uh, expressive of it in the context of media and movies was considered scandalous. Yet even in the context of 70, 80 years ago, in which sexuality outside of marriage or sexuality in the context of media was considered scandalous, we all know that it was very common. Prostitution was very common, as well as adultery or many other forms of pornography and sex outside of marriage. So it's not that they thought that it was right. It's that all these things were considered wrong, but still done. As the sexual revolution happened in the 70s and 80s, this opened up a totally new realm and that it opened up sex, sex and sexuality into the broader perspective outside of marriage. In this way, we opened up also topics of pornography and pornography use. We opened up topics of masturbation. We also opened up topics such as, can sex happen at any point? And is it now just a pleasurable activity? Or is it a context of showing love for a person? This is all what we're currently wrestling with. And what we're also wrestling with, but don't talk about, is what is appropriate sexual behavior? I don't know. And in some ways, we don't really know what inappropriate sexual behavior is either. We have some ideas, and I'm not going to go into detail with that. But we also don't really know how to talk about that in a way that doesn't limit someone's freedom and make them upset, but also recognizes the dignity of both people engaged in the sexual act. That's the ultimate grounds there. How do we keep the dignity of the people and also the dignity of the act without diminishing or limiting or all this other stuff that goes with it? Because sex does have its dignity. It has a beauty in being able to express the love of the people, and we don't want to lose that particular act. We don't want to lose what sex has. And that's why this question has some importance to it. And that's the point that drives us into the topic of contraception. So what is contraceptives? In a basic definition, a contraceptive is any drug or foreign entity whose principal purpose is to prevent pregnancy. Let me repeat that. A contraceptive is any drug or foreign entity whose principal purpose is to prevent pregnancy. As a quick caveat, that does not mean that I am talking about contraceptive use for the sake of regulating a woman's cycle or for the sake of any other biological process outside of pregnancy or outside of the sexual act. Those are a totally different ethic, and according to the Catholic Church, it, those are all considered moral because they're used for the good of the biological processes, namely the health of the individual. We'll dive a little bit into that as we talk about how that affects pregnancy and the immorality of contraception here in a moment. So what does a contraceptive do? A contraceptive has two different functions. On one level, it can prevent the pregnancy by preventing the sperm from reaching the egg. The second site of contraceptive use, also called Plan B, is to prevent the, egg, the now fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus or assumed to be fertilized egg from implanting, which is also considered an abortion or an abortificant. The contraceptive, what it does is two things. 
The first one is that it prevents the pregnancy. It prevents the sperm from reaching the egg. In these particular situations, why it's considered immoral by the Catholic Church's perspective is that it divorces the two ends of, of, of sex from its intended good. So the two ends are procreation of children and unity of the spouse. And if we're deciding to focus just on unity and not on procreation, then we're divorcing one of the ends and limiting the good or the dignity of the sexual act. We're actually preventing it from expressing its highest quality. Yes, I get it. Some people are very upset by this because it means, or it sounds like, I'm encouraging everyone to have lots and lots and lots of children. No, that is not the case, and we'll talk about that in a little while. Contraceptives on their basic side is preventing the, the couple from expressing both ends, the procreation of children and the unitive act of sex. On the other end, the abortificant side of contraceptive, what it's doing is it's preventing a now-fertilized new individual from being able to grow and develop as a kid. It's actually for preventing this particular kid from having a life. Yes, you may disagree with me that the fetus is considered a kid. We'll talk about that when we talk about abortion. Give me one moment. So in this particular situation, I want to go back that if we are divorcing the sexual act from its procreative ends, now it's just strictly unitive. And if it's strictly unitive, we can also diminish it further by saying, by using contraceptives, I can just have sex as often as I want. I can use whoever I want. And now not only are we divorcing the sexual act from its unitive side, but we're also now degrading people in the process of sexuality. Sex is now just a, an event or like a, a recreational activity in which I can do it as often as I want with whomever I want, and I don't really care what the intended outcomes are, but nevertheless, it's fun and enjoyable just like riding a bike or like playing a game in the park. Wow, that changed fast. So let's take a moment and talk about some of the common critiques for this particular understanding of contraceptive, especially as it's considered immoral. The first major critique is this. Shouldn't a couple be able to choose how many children they have and how often they have them? Doesn't not using contraceptive mean that children, that parents have to have as many children as they can? First of all, parents should be able to choose how many children they have and how often. That's part of the planning of their family and making ethical choices. If parents had children as much as or as often as they could, they would strain their budgets. They would probably be very upset and angry all the time as they're trying to manage this huge family they, they have and may not might not be able to control the children or raise them properly, be able to be good parents to them, or even financially fund these kids. That does not seem like an ethical choice. I could not in good conscience direct a family to have as many children as they possibly can just because they can have as many children as they possibly can. That seems like a very immoral decision and an unethical choice for me to make in advising a family. And so in this case, yes, families by all means should be able to plan and prepare and be able to decide how many children they can financially afford, how many children they can actively take care of, what's the size their family should be. But does contraceptives help that or hinder that? That's the question. So on one level, we'd say, of course, contraception helps that. It prevents them from having more pregnancies that they didn't plan for, and therefore, they will have as many children as they wish. 
Yes, kind of. So what happens when contraceptives don't work? They aren't 100% accurate. So even though a family may be using contraceptions, they may not have the family they intend. They may have fewer or more, just because that's the nature of how that works. Every time that someone engages in sex, there's a possibility of having children. And to be open and real about that helps a couple to understand what they are doing and to unite themselves more fully. Which leads to a couple situations. Now, this may seem odd to you, but I would argue that I would see contraceptive morality in a very different light if one thing were to be very different. Namely, I would see contraception as moral if women were perpetually fertile, which means regardless of what happens, every time the person has sex, they will be pregnant. Which sounds awful, honestly, that if every time people engage in sex that led to pregnancy, there would be a lot more children in the world and a lot more frustrated and upset people as they didn't plan for it or didn't want it, and boom, it happened. But that's not the way it is. Every woman has a cycle, and it's built into the biology of females in that women have a cycle of fertility and infertility, and their cycle of infertility is 99.9% accurate, the same or 99% effective, just like any form of contraceptive use. So that means if a woman has sex during her infertile periods, she will not get pregnant, or very, very unlikely that she will get pregnant. So it's built into the biology of a woman that she will have periods of fertility and infertility, the ability to choose kind of if she knows her cycle well enough when to have sex and when not so that without using some sort of foreign means or chemical supplement she can still have sex and not worry about pregnancy. What this means is if a couple wishes to use this form which is called natural family planning where they regulate her cycle as to be able to predict when she would be pregnant when would be times of fertility and infertility, and be able to plan their family that way, they're using the biology God has already given them and the natural cycle of a woman to decide when they should have sex. What this does is it increases the communication of the couple, allows them to talk about this process, it also allows them to talk about family planning, it also opens up new avenues for them. Because one of the issues we're now starting to discover in psychology is that overuse of the sex drive, or hypersexuality, does lead to problems like erectile dysfunction. It also leads to issues of emotional um, conflict in the couple. It also causes problems of lack of sex drive. All of this, when tempered by choices made such as, we can't have sex now, let's do something else, builds the couple's relationship on something more than sex and allows them to explore new avenues to show their love and explores new avenues to build communication and also to express their love for each other in new ways so that when they get the opportunity to have sex it's a lot more um, efficacious it's a lot more pleasurable they kind of waited for that moment it can be more special and keep the dignity of the sexual act the big major the main critique of natural family planning is that it's very complicated and frankly i agree It is complicated to constantly measure the cycle of a woman through uh, temperature regulation and other means. It's complicated. True, it's, it's very complicated. But also is the process of being on the pill, where the woman has to take the pill at the same time every day without fault. Everything is complicated. That's just the way it works. Hopefully, 
by the couple working at this and recognizing what it means to monitor it and regulate it and to know the cycle, it'll actually build the relationship and make it simpler. That they're both working together and that they kind of get a sense of how it works. And as time progresses, they'll get used to it to the point where it becomes normal like everything else, like brushing our teeth or eating breakfast in the morning. The main point that I want to get out of this section on contraceptive use is that the main reason why contraceptive is considered immoral by the Catholic Church's standards is because it divorces the sexual act from one of its intended means, which is the procreation of children. It is an active approach by the people engaged in sex to say, I do not want children and I'm going to prevent it by any means possible and I want to have sex now regardless of waiting for a moment later and therefore I am now focused more on the experience of it than the intended act ends for it. I see this now as my form of pleasure or unity and not so much as, wow, this could bring children into the world. Let's lead to the most controversial one. Yeah, it's not contraception, believe, it or not. believe that or not. It's, why is abortion considered immoral? So again, let's start out. What is abortion? Abortion is the intentional act of terminating the life of a fetus in utero. Abortion is the intentional act of terminating the life of a fetus in utero. Let's go through all these points. So first of all, what is a fetus? This may seem simple, but it's actually very controversial. A fetus is the developing embryo in a woman's uterus. It is considered a human being because it has DNA and it has all the potential to become a human. We don't wonder, oh, will this fetus become a dolphin or will it become a dog? What are you going to give birth to after nine months? Oh, I'm not sure. Yet, on the one side of the spectrum of why some people think abortion should be moral, is that they see the fetus as not human. It's a chunk of cells growing inside the woman that's now more like a parasite. Being able to define and be real about what the fetus is will ultimately change the way we understand this particular topic. I argue, based on science, that since the fetus has the DNA of a human being and we have no reason to believe it can develop into anything but a human being, it is therefore a human being. Therefore, the act of abortion is the termination of the life of a human being. I want to be clear about one point of that, that when we terminate the the life of a human being, terminate the life of the fetus, it's not just, hey, it happens to end, what do we do, such as a miscarriage. That is not immoral. That is actually just a very sad event that happens when the woman's body decides it can't keep the, the child to full term. The abortion, on the other hand, is the intentional act of terminating the life. It means I have gone in and chosen to kill the fetus. I'm not saying what would happen if I take it out and leave it for its own. I'm not wondering what would happen if I take it out and say, will it survive? That's different. If I go in with a scalpel and cut it into pieces, I am intentionally trying to kill the fetus. Or if I put drugs in that I know will kill it, I am intentionally trying to kill it. That's why abortion has to be defined as the intentional act of killing the fetus. It's not accidental. And we'll get into some issues of this very soon as to how we understand both the fetus and the intentional act. The other part of it is it's the fetus in utero. This is in the woman's body. This is important for a number of reasons. The woman is now required to take care of this child that's growing inside of her. 
It causes distress. It causes hormonal changes. It causes a difference in lifestyle that she may or may not have attended. But if we take it out, she is no longer under the moral uh, implication of the issue of abortion. If we take the fetus out and it's growing on its own in some incubation chamber, it's not considered abortion anymore. It'd be considered infanticide because the child has been more or less born. All of these issues, the idea of intentional act, the termination of the life, and that it's a fetus, are all, all essential for understanding the issue of abortion. The reason why the Catholic Church considers abortion immoral is because it's a termination of an innocent life. The fetus has done nothing wrong. It has no reason why it has to die. It probably isn't in any situation in which we are required to kill it by moral standards, such as the fetus is not some major drug lord who has gone around killing hundreds of people and we can't figure out how to stop the act of this drug lord killing all the people. Fetuses don't do that. Therefore, we can't consider it under the idea that it's committed some crime to which warrants death. Instead, it has done nothing to warrant death. It's just the product of a sexual act that has led to a fetus being produced and now growing, hopefully, into a child. Therefore, we have no right to kill this fetus. We have no right to kill the child. Therefore, abortion is considered immoral because we have no right to kill it. This leads to some fun implications and questions such as, can a doctor intend to remove a fetus early but not intend its death? The answer is yes. If a doctor can remove a, a fetus four weeks before the birth in a C-section or some other form of surgery with the intention of hoping that the child can develop in a um, artificial womb or in a chamber of some kind and hope the child survives, the doctor can even remove it much earlier than that with the hope that it survives. But the caveat is this. If the doctor intends to kill it or by removing it knows that it has to die, it gets a little bit more dicey. If he does any intentional act to which causes harm to the fetus, we cannot assume that he's doing it for the hope that the child will survive. For instance, if I take a knife and stab my friend thinking, oh, this will cure your blindness, no, it'll probably kill him. That's not considered an intentional act to which I would be intending to save him. I cannot justify that action. Therefore, if the doctor intends to bring the fetus out early with the sake of saving, for the sake of saving the mother's life and the child's life, that is a moral action. That is a good. To try and save both lives or to try and keep the fetus alive, that is moral. The most controversial argument and the most difficult argument in all the midst of this is, what if the mother's life is in danger? Can we justify abortion given that the mother's life is in danger? The answer is no, but the actual act of what we're going to end up doing is very complicated. So in the event that the mother's life is in danger, we have what's called the principle of double effect, that we have two bad outcomes and no real good outcome. Either we save the mother and kill the child, or we save the child and kill the mother, and there's no way in the middle, or it doesn't look like there's any way in the middle, that the only way out of the situation is to choose one life or the other, and that's the challenge. Which life is more important, the life of the child or the life of the mother? I don't want to go into that, because that's a really complicated topic that takes a whole series of its own. 
Nevertheless, we do have a middle ground. We can try to birth the child early. We can try to extract the child through a C-section or a surgery and hope the child will develop outside the womb. These are all options. In the very, very unlikely event that the child cannot be removed from the mother without killing the mother, that's for a whole realm of a very specific ethical situation that we need to sit down and wrestle with completely. But the main point of this is that this particular situation is not normal. It is an extreme case. And we should never use extreme cases to justify the morality of an action. That is called a fallacy of special concern or special situation. It means that there's a specific situation that's outside the norm and very unlikely, and because of that weird situation, we're going to use it to justify a specific action. No, we can't do that. We have to see the standard action of abortion as the taking of an innocent life and see that as a moral situation and then deal with the strange event that a mother is now has her life in danger because of the pregnancy. That's a very different situation. Now for the really big challenge. Well, doesn't the woman have a choice in what to do with her body? Well, yes, of course she does. The woman should have a choice of what to do with her body at all times and circumstances because it's her body. I should not have to control her or tell her what to do. Neither should we have to impose a bunch of laws. That being said, we have to be very careful with this next point. This works in almost every situation except abortion. In abortion, we have to nuance it slightly. So in the case of abortion, we have two lives, the life of the child and the life of the mother. Does the child also have a right of what happens with their body, just like the woman has a right to, do with, uh, a right to choose what happens with her body? In this situation, we have two rights that are in conflict with each other. Who wins out? There's a common example given when we talk about abortion in the philosophical realm, and it goes like this. There's a world-famous violinist that everyone loved who has a rare blood condition. In order to cure this rare blood condition, he has to be hooked up to this woman for nine months, and their blood gets exchanged between them, and then once the nine months are over, he is cured and ready to, and fine to go. Is it right for the woman to terminate this situation she's in because she doesn't want to be in this relationship anymore? I argue no. And the reason why is this, but we have to add some color to it. I, ar I would argue that, first of all, I assume the woman was not forced into this relationship. She chose it. If she was forced into it, this would be analogous to rape, in which case I would say, okay, she could terminate this particular relationship because she was forced into it. If she agreed to it, she consented to spending this, these nine months with this guy hooked up to, a, up to him, exchanging blood. She made the agreement. She is bound to this agreement, and therefore it would be immoral for her to stop and terminate his life. The same thing works with pregnancy. She engaged with sex. We know sex has an end to procreation, that it creates children. By engaging with the action, we know the outcomes. Therefore, since we know the outcomes, we should be bound by our, by the consequences of it. We shouldn't say, oh, well, I didn't really want that. What can I do to end it? The analogous situation, which I'm sure you'll not like me for using, is if I decided to drive drunk and killed someone, and I went to the court, and they said, you are now sentenced to life for driving drunk and killing this person. And I say, excuse me, I intended to drive, 
I happen to be drunk. I should not be held accountable for my, the consequence of killing that person because I was just driving like normal. Wait a minute. No, you chose an action to which you knew would impair you, and therefore, by impairing you, you should face the consequences. No one would agree with my statement that I should not have to face the consequences. We should be held accountable for the consequences of our actions, whether we like them or not. And there are ways to deal with it better or worse. That's up to us to decide and to figure out what's the best circumstances. That being said, the child should not be the recipient of the negative consequence, namely to be killed, because of the bad choices of those, the, spouse, the parents of this child, the mother and the father. There are other ways to deal with this. How should we? That's the big question. I want to end this particular episode with a discussion on pro-life versus poor choice. This is a debate that rages in our society right now and causes a lot of distress, and I want to talk around it a little bit so that we get a good picture of both sides. So I'm going to start with pro-life, the side I know the best. The, the stance of the pro-life movement is life is sacred and therefore should be protected from natural conception to natural death. The true pro-life movement protects life from, the, from womb all the way to natural death. That would include issues of euthanasia, retirement homes, and planning for death. That also includes the care of families, the care of children, education. All of those things that deal with the issues of life are fit, fit into this particular category. Therefore, people who are pro-life are really trying to support life at all levels, one of which happens to be pregnancy and the abortion movement. People who are anti-abortion, on the other hand, are people who are just against the act of abortion. The other side of the debate is pro-choice. People in the pro-choice movement usually state that a woman has the right to choose what she does with her body. And frankly, I agree with her, with them, all of them, that yes, she has a right to choose what happens with her body. A friend of mine made a good point a little while ago. She said that by making abortion illegal, it means that the law system, the government, is telling women what she can and cannot do with her body. She's right. By making abortion illegal, we are saying what can and cannot happen with someone's body. That's one point in which I agree on how we should respond to this on a legal perspective. But that does not diminish the effects or the problems with abortion. Although women do have a right to choose what happens with their body, they chose from the moment that the child was conceived. Should we divorce them from the consequence of the conception of that child because they don't want the consequence of now birthing a child? That's the big issue. And that's the issue that pro-choicers have to wrestle with. What about the consequences? How do we understand them? Do the consequences then diminish your rights? Or do they do your rights over supersede the consequence? That's the debate. Ultimately, both of them do strive for some good in themselves, and I don't want to picture either of them in a negative light, or a specifically only negative light. Pro-life focuses on the importance of life. Pro-choice focuses on the importance of the woman being able to choose. If we could come together and make a consensus on how to deal with this issue, we'd be much better off for it. To summarize this episode real quickly, contraception is immoral because it divorces the marital act of the procreation of children, and the unity of the spouses. By making it immoral and taking that stance, it allows us to build stronger relationships between the spouses and also allows them to plan for their future 
and also plan for pregnancies in the midst of natural family planning. Abortion is immoral because it kills the fetus. It kills a human being. Now, how we deal with this on a sociological level, how we look at abortion, is a totally different question. Is the best route for eliminating abortion in our society a legal route, or is it the route of caring for families and building up programming? That's for us to decide. That is the debate. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 